So picking up where we left off last week, we don't have time to do a crash course in the first 11 chapters of the book of Luke, but suffice it to say that uh, we've worked our way through Jesus's ministry in Galilee. He's now set his face like Flint to go to Jerusalem where he will die in the place of sinners like you and me. Uh, He is performing miracles and bringing teaching to the table. We've just seen him heal a mute man, a man whose tongue was bound by a a demon, yet again exercising his power and authority over evil, which we've seen numerous times now in Luke's gospel account. In this instance, prompting a, a response of both slander and skepticism. Slander as it pertains to the source of his power, which some are attributing to Beelzebul, the prince of demons, going back to last week. Satan, the devil. And it's not just your your run-of-the-mill townspeople who are saying these things. Matthew's account tells us that it was the Pharisees who were making these slanderous accusations. With Mark's account adding that there were also scribes from Jerusalem among the slanderers. That in denying that Jesus was the Son of God, the scribes and Pharisees had to come up with some other explanation for the power by which Jesus was performing these miracles. And their conclusion? Well, it must be the power of the devil. That's the slander. Last week, we looked at at Jesus' response to that slanderous claim, the accusation regarding his source of power, as we saw Jesus bring simple common sense into the conversation, declaring that it would make no sense whatsoever to cast out demons by way of demonic power. How silly would that be for, for Satan to drive out his own underlings, which would amount to evil destroying itself? Satan's aim is not to destroy his own kingdom, but rather to exercise his reign as the ruler of this world through his demon army in the relentless effort to seek to destroy God's kingdom. But Jesus goes further than that. He goes further than simple common sense as he makes an astonishing statement. Going back to chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's a declaration that that heaven's king has come to inaugurate his kingdom and with that to destroy the evil one and his kingdom. One stronger than the strong man, Satan, to use the language of last week's passage, having come to bind the strong man, to crush the strong man under his feet, to plunder the strong man's palace and set the captives free. 1 John chapter 3, verse eight. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil Long my imprisoned spirit lay, we sing it all the time, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I awoke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. The miracle of redemption, Jesus having come to set us free from the domain of darkness, we talked about that last week, bringing us into the kingdom of his beloved son, The Father's done that great work if you're a Christian. It's proof, Jesus' deliverance of the mute man going back to last week, that not only is Jesus not on Satan's side, but he exercises a power that's supremely greater than Satan's power. And with that, the authority to declare, going back to last week, verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We've seen this throughout Luke's gospel account, that Jesus leaves no space for neutrality. There is no third option. The slanderers were declaring 
He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while the skeptics to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Verses 15 and 16. Last week, we, we looked at Jesus' response to the slander, the accusation of the scribes and Pharisees regarding the source of his power. This is kind of a part two from last week, to be continued. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' response to the skepticism, the demand for a sign. If you pick up in verse 27, Luke tells us, and he said these things, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed are those, uh, rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's not the first time we've, we've seen this in Luke's gospel account, going all the way back to the very beginning, chapter one, verses 41 and 42. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth's own pregnancy had, had been a focal point of excitement and joy after all those years of, of barrenness. And yet she set aside her own good news and without hesitation praised God for what he'd done for Mary, declaring Mary to be blessed for her trust in God's promises, for the privilege of bearing the Messiah. Coming back to this morning's passage, a woman in the crowd recognizes the power and authority of Jesus, pronouncing a blessing on the woman who brought Jesus into the world. Mary herself, she declared that would happen. Again, chapter one, verse 48. For behold, Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. But notice here that, that Jesus focuses on the blessing not of bearing the Messiah, but the blessing that comes in hearing God's word and keeping it, which is just what Mary did, right? In submissive obedience to the Lord's plan to bring Jesus into the world. We wouldn't celebrate Advent were it not for Luke 138. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary submitted to God's word, to God's promise, to God's plan. As God had decreed all along, she had no idea of what it might cost her. Facing the possibility of, of public shame for her pregnancy, the exact opposite of Elizabeth possible loss of her betrothed along with her reputation, not to mention the, the many sufferings she couldn't possibly predict. From the family escape to Egypt in the midst of Herod's ordered slaughtering of innocent children around the time of Jesus's birth, to the beholding of her dying son as she looked up to the cross. In that moment that she submitted to God's word, she had no idea of what it would cost her. But she knew without question that God was worthy of her humble submission. Coming back to this morning's passage, God the Son standing before this crowd, worthy of humble submission, heaven's king having come. Jesus declares that the greatest blessing comes in hearing God's word and keeping it. As Mary did in embracing the Lord's will for her life. As Jesus says in much stronger language, going all the way back to chapter 8, verse 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus goes on to say in verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. 
For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. As a side note, notice that that Jesus places his seal of approval on the historicity of the story of Jonah. Not only does Jesus pair the story of Jonah with the story of the queen of the south who came from the ends of the earth to visit Solomon, going back to 1 Kings chapter 10, a story treated as historical fact included in the, the history books of Israel's kings. But more than that, Jesus declares that repentant Ninevites will rise up on the last day along with the queen of the south, actual human beings who we will someday see when Jesus returns. And those actual human beings, Jesus says, will act as a witness against those who fail to repent. Jesus says to the skeptics in the crowd seeking a sign, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. What does that mean? What's the sign of Jonah? Well, thankfully, Matthew's gospel account helps us out there because Matthew tells us, chapter 12, verses 38 through 40 of his writing, But Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Here it is. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Going back to last week, the the skeptics in the crowd don't see the exorcism, which has just taken place right in front of them as a sign of the kingdom. They want something more. You hear that oftentimes. Well, if if God would do X, Y, or Z in my life, maybe I'll believe he's real. In this case, the demand for a sign itself, not an indication of willingness to believe, but rather an excuse not to leave one's nets to use that disciple imagery and follow Jesus. Already, they had all the evidence they needed as they stood before heaven's king. Jesus here declaring that the only sign that would be given would be the sign to come, future, which is why Jesus says future tense, verse 30, I will be a sign, the sign of Jonah, the reappearance of the Son of God three days after being buried, not in the depths of the sea, but in the belly of the earth. God's greatest sign, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're gonna get into it soon enough. When we get to uh, Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus, and, and we've looked at this before as a church, this idea that the entirety of scripture, the Old Testament was looking forward to the coming of Jesus, pointing to Jesus Christ, and, and you see it in so many ways. Here Jesus saying, the, the greater Jonah is before you. Not one bringing the word of God, but the true word of God, John 1. One greater than Solomon, not only a greater king, but the personification of wisdom. 1 Kings 4.29, God may have given Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, but in Jesus Christ, Colossians 2.3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
The queen of Sheba listened to the inferior wisdom of Solomon and she praised the Lord of Israel. She responded rightly. The Ninevites listened to the inferior prophet Jonah and they repented of their sin. They responded rightly. Here, the greater Solomon, the greater Jonah stands in front of this crowd and they fail to see him. They miss him to their own condemnation. There was enough evidence then. There's enough evidence now. Church is on every corner in our context. And people are missing Jesus left and right. He's right there. And the evidence demands a response. Jesus goes on to say, verse 33, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Again, this is not the first time we see this kind of imagery in Luke's gospel account. Jesus said something almost verbatim if you go back to chapter 8, verse 21, right after his telling of the parable of the sower, one of the most famous parables in all of Scripture where where Jesus comes after the heart, the soil out out of which the God-glorifying fruit of obedience is born. Here Jesus says, in essence, a lamp is utilitarian. And its ability to shine light into darkness, but, but only to the extent that it's rightly used. Right? A covered or, or hidden lamp is, is useless in the utilitarian sense. Like a home security system, if you don't press the armed button. In the same way, the word of God must be put into practice. Je- Jesus says it must be responded to what I'm saying here. The truth of the gospel put to use. To, to use that parable of the sower imagery... The seed must bear fruit rather than remaining buried in the ground. The crowd has heard the truth. In fact, the light of the world is standing right there in front of them. The radiance of the glory of God in Jesus Christ right there in front of them. On visible display, not hidden under a basket, on a stand. Then in some sense what Jesus is saying is the problem is not with me. As if you just need one more sign. You need me to do one more uh, miracle, one more trick to get you to buy in, to consider me shining brightly enough. No, the problem is with man, man's own blindness and inner darkness, which is why Jesus goes on to say in verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Jesus says there are two kinds of eyes. The kind that's bad and is associated with inner darkness. And the kind that's healthy and is associated with inner light question that begs to be answered is well, what, what distinguishes a healthy eye from a, from a bad eye? This is where the original Greek can be incredibly helpful because the word translated healthy in, in many of our Bibles is the Greek word hapalous. And it doesn't simply mean healthy or clear or sound, but single or, or unfolded, literally without folds, referring to a single undivided focus. In other words, not having a a hidden, duplicitous agenda. 
In fact, the, the antonym of that Greek word, haplous, is the Greek word diplous, meaning double. We're going to get into this soon enough next week, but remember, among those in the crowd are the scribes and Pharisees who have just attributed the source of Jesus' power to the devil of hell. What do we know about the scribes and Pharisees? Well, we know that they externally appeared to have things in order while harboring an inner darkness and decay. The very thing we're going to see next week, verse 39, is Jesus pronounced woes to the scribes and Pharisees, those who cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside are full of greed and wickedness. Blind guides. And not because they were blind, but because they saw things wrongly. All the while so sure of themselves. That's the terrifying thing. That's the greatest darkness. Because it's a darkness that thinks that it's light. Coming back to last week, like the man from whom the demon left, who swept his house in order, it's possible to live a life of moral renovation and yet miss Jesus all the while. Failing to see him for who he truly is. To think that one has seen the light, all the while missing the light of the gospel. Philip Ryken in his commentary, incredibly helpful, he says, When the eyes of the soul are clear, we are able to see the light of Jesus Christ shining in the gospel. We perceive that he really is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. We see the cross and the empty tomb, the signs for all times. We believe that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and rose again to give us eternal life. The love of Christ, he says, shines brightly in our hearts and we start walking in the light of his love. But when our spiritual eyes are bad, when they're covered with the cataract of unrepentant sin or blinded by the skeptical demand for more and more evidence, then we cannot see Jesus as our savior. The problem is not that we do not have enough light as if God needed to give us a more brilliant sign. No, God has given us enough light in his gospel. The problem is that we cannot see it because our hearts are still in darkness. The, the crowd, the crowd demanded a sign. The light of the world, again, standing right there in front of them. And they couldn't see him. They declared Jesus to be the problem when the problem was their own blindness, their own inner darkness. We've been given the greatest sign, the sign of the gospel. We preach that greatest sign every week in this place. There is no greater sign. Christ crucified and risen. If you're not a Christian, the, the, the gospel message is not a message of moral renovation or self-sufficiency. It's a message of spiritual blindness apart from the radiant light of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Here it is, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Or how about Colossians 1.13? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now my prayer is that God would would shine in the heart of every unbeliever in this place this morning to give the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ that you wouldn't miss him as he's right in front of you this morning. The greater Solomon, the personification of wisdom, heaven's king, the greater Jonah hurled into the raging sea of God's wrath three days in the belly of the earth on behalf of lost sinners like you and me. 
I invite you this morning to see and savor Jesus as your Savior and King, to turn from your sins, to trust in him for salvation. And if you are a Christian, this is one of those sermons, one of those passages of Scripture that can frustrate us if you come in and you're like, give me my three things I'm supposed to do. What's the outworking of of God's grace in my life? Let me go out and be a Christian. A passage like this is meant for you to, to stand amazed, to marvel at the miracle of God's sovereign grace in giving you eyes to see. You and I, we, apart from God's grace, we stand among the slanderers and skeptics. We're not better than the scribes and Pharisees. We're meant to, to praise God's glorious grace this morning that we've been given eyes to see. Praise him that he shined in your heart to give the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That God said, let there be light and the scales fell away from your eyes and you saw Jesus for who he truly is. You went from blind, disheveled, impoverished, outcast, groping in the dark for something to hope in to a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ if you're a Christian. We're going to sing it in a moment. You've seen the light. No more in darkness. No more in night. Don't let that get lost on you. And with that, the question, what are you, what are you going to do in response to that? Hide it under a bushel? No. Not if you've truly seen Jesus. As Jesus says in Matthew's gospel account, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're going back to verse 28. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We'll see next week. That's about so much more than external reformation. It's changed from the inside out as an outworking of that miracle of illumination. I would ask again, have you experienced this miracle? Do you know this Jesus? Do you shout hearty hallelujahs that he is the greater Jonah? Having been hurled into the sea of God's wrath, that God could look upon you with favor as his son or daughter. Do you see him as the greater Solomon? Wisdom personified, the greater king. Have you trusted in him? His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection is your hope for salvation.